Rachel Hampton. And I'm Candace Slim, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And Candace, today, well, today for no reason at all, I feel like being a hater. Mm, I mean, here's the thing. Being a hater is a full-time job, so clock in, Rachel. I am clocked in. I've punched my card. Something's in the air. Maybe it's that I've been trying to get on a tattoo artist books for a year now and have been thwarted for the rest of 2023. Maybe it's just that I'm PMSing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Regardless, let's revel in this hater energy. <laughs> so it's a little early for us to do our annual episode on trends that need to stay in 2023. But I thought, what if we gave our listeners a little teaser by each offering up something that's currently happening online that needs to stop. Candace, would you like to go first? Absolutely. Two words for you, Rachel. Cowboy Bezos. I knew the second word before you even finished. Yes. (laughs) But tell me more. Tell me more. So this week, Vogue published a story and a photo shoot with Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez. Jeff Bezos being the dude who founded Amazon and killed our nation one by one. This was supposed to be a high-profile shoot. It was shot by Annie Leibovitz. Big deal, big deal. And Rachel, I think you've seen the photos. How would you describe this shoot in a few words? Um... I would say Yellowstone cosplay. Oh. You know, it's a cowboy hat on Jeff Bezos for reasons that I have yet to determine. It's them sitting in the doorway, them being Jeff and Lauren, sitting in the doorway of what looks to be a Jeep or some other kind of off-road vehicle. When are they ever off-road? Unclear. Like, I know he moved (laughs) to Utah or something, but... That does not make you a cowboy. Yeah, it's this attempt at yeet haw that has been really grating on me lately. So for more context, Lauren Sanchez is the fiance of Jeff Bezos. She allegedly started a helicopter company. She may be a bit of an entrepreneur, amongst other things, but basically the shoot is her standing in this metal thing called like a 10,000-year clock. It's basically a huge clock that Jeff Bezos himself paid for to put inside a mountain. Makes no sense. As you mentioned, they are sitting in a pickup, Jeff Bezos cowboy hat on, and she is hanging on to him for dear life. You know, Botoxed eye to Botox cheek. Okay. We have Mm -hmm. to talk about the plastic surgery because the thing is, I'm a passive supporter of plastic surgery. Do what you want. Is it all a result of a culture that is perhaps fucked up? Yes. Yes. But what's happening with Jeff and Lauren is what happens when no one in your life tells you no. Because someone should have put a stop to this. Someone should have been like, whoa, 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 guys. You actually, you're looking really good for your ages. You know? Yeah. You're aging gracefully. You're looking like how... If you said James Marsden is 50, we would all be like, what? (laughs) You know? But now they've entered the uncanny valley. And the thing is, that's not even the most important part of this. The most important part of this is why are they cosplaying as cowboys? Right. It's so weird because, you know, people are absolutely coming at them online as honestly Mm -hmm. I think is deserved. I think backlash is deserved for certain people. And these people are kind of lighting up the comments, calling Jeff Bezos Steven Tyler. They're calling him 
<laughs> Tim McGraw, which is kind of funny because that's actually like way too high of a compliment. Tim McGraw is hot. That's the thing. People keep forgetting he's hot now. And okay. I just feel like the best way to summarize the backlash to this photo shoot is that someone commented on Vogue's Instagram post of it and they wrote, I think we should refrain from superheroifying and glamorizing billionaires who built their wealth by exploiting and overworking their notoriously underpaid employees. They continue. No amount of PR can make either of these people likable, which <laughs> I think is true because this photo shoot is cringy. This is a couple that lives in such a land of Delulu that their mm-hmm. version of like their trap hot and sexy is not close to anyone else's. And that is the vibe I keep getting from this, you know? Yes. You really said all you need to say. And the thing is, we didn't even bring up a live girl, which I actually really, I commend us for. We're not going to bring it up. But you did mention the phrase thirst trap, which reminded me of the thing that I hate the most (sighs) right now, to be clear. Candace, are you familiar with a white rapper and general menace to society? Jackman Thomas Harlow. Oh, yes. BET Award nominee Jack Harlow. Yeah. (laughs) On November 10th, he released a single called Lovin' On Me. And listen, I'm a hater, but I'm not a liar. Unless it's for personal gain, in which case I will (laughs) lie my ass off. But this song is catchy. It's got a nice beat that I'm willing to attribute mostly to the sample, but... Whatever, there's a producer involved. The thing about this song is not the song. It's that it started a trend that will be the death of me and also Jackman if I ever get my hands on him. The very beginning of the song goes like this. I'm vanilla, baby. I'll choke you, but I ain't no killer, baby. She 28 telling me I'm still a baby. I get love in Detroit like Skiller, baby. And the thing about your boy is... Before we move on, how do you how do you feel about this? Listening to it with no visuals, mm-hmm. I'm like a little bit optimistic. I'm like, okay, oh. um, I are we are we getting a beat? Maybe I like it. Let's see. So this song comes out on the tenth, and immediately, and I mean immediately, even before the single fully drops, when just the teaser is out, the white men of TikTok who exclusively post thirst traps saw an opportunity to make the cringiest video possible. Now, I already don't respect these men for many reasons, okay? But the first and foremost is that at some point, I had a very alarming thought that now rattles around in my head like that little DVD screensaver that's just bopping around from corner to corner. And that thought is, Candace, imagine being in the same room as a man filming a TikTok thirst trap. Oh. Just imagine it for a second. Oh. Close your eyes right now and think about it for a second. I'm going to I'm going to paint a picture. Imagine imagine this man setting up a little tripod. Imagine him biting his lip for the camera in an empty room. Mhm. Imagine him slapping an invisible ass for no one. <laughs> imagine him recording it over and over again. Imagine him then watching the video back mm-hmm. and thinking, "Yep." Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I did that. And then hitting upload. Mm -hmm. And then try not to cringe out of your skin. Guaranteed, Mood Killer, the hottest man in the world, cannot recover from that. I am sorry. So just the concept of this, the bare fact of white man thirst trap TikTok makes me want to die. And the thing is, it's not just white men. It's equal opportunity. Every single one of y'all needs to stop looking into that front face of camera and making eyes of yourself. It's stop it. (laughs) But then you add in this song. And I'm stopping myself from making a gagging noise because I know people hate that and I'm respecting your ears. Please say thank you. 
The first time this crossed my feed was with a video by someone at the handle of Quinnical. And I'd like to preface this by saying, Quinnical, if you're listening to this, I respect you, okay? I respect everything you do. You found a niche and it's working for you and everything you're doing is harmless. I wanna say that right now. You're not causing harm to the world. So this Quinnical video, which we won't be playing because it's just the first 30 seconds of this song that you've already heard, but this video has almost 7 million likes at this point, And I'm just gonna give you a visual description of what's happening. This man is tall and white with glasses, which is enough to get you pretty far in life, to be completely honest. But on TikTok, it's enough to gain him a legion of extremely horny followers who were all frothing at the mouth when he uploaded his version of this trend, which involved him solving a Rubik's Cube in the first few seconds, tossing it over his shoulder, then signing, as in like ASL sign language, the number's 28, and then doing the attendant dance moves, that's in quotes, of this trend, which include pretending to choke someone consensually, of course, and also um, attempting to demonstrate a semblance of rhythm. Candace, I made you watch this video. Please give me your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) It's the choking I don't like. That's the move I don't like. Like, you could maybe make the argument that signing... The number 28 is progressing the movement. However, (laughs) the choking I don't like. And the thing is, Rachel sent me another one where a guy had tattoos Mm -hmm. and he did the choking motion. Mm -hmm. Why is the top comment something like, oh, my God, imagine a tattooed hand choking you. It's like, no. And I don't like the 16.8K people who like that comment. (laughs) We need to do a horn audit. Okay. So true. And the thing is, I'm going to read you more comments that are going to make us need to do a horn audit. Okay, so (laughs) on Quinnicle's video, the first comments are saying he's like Dr. Spencer Reed meets Jack Harlow. And I'm totally here for it. So the next comment, white boy Winter has me gagged. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Another comment in all caps and the gentle slap, too. I just have to say that, you know what, some people... That is their yum, and I would like to yuck it. So true, Queen. We are here to yuck, and Mm. we are here to yuck more because, as you said, there are more videos in this genre, videos that I sent you because if I'm suffering, we are all suffering. Mm -hmm. There are a legion of white men out there who have been lying in wait since Callie said, got a white boy on my roster, he'd be feeding me pasta and lobster. And all I can Mm. say to the women in these comments who are clamoring for white boy winter is, stand up. Men used to build houses. And now they're wiggling their hips on TikTok and you're falling for it. I am disgusted. Mm -hmm. You and I are standing in front of the congregation saying, girl, get up, girl, Mm -hmm. get up. And here's the thing, Rachel, I do have some bad news for you because you do know that this means we're probably just a few short days away from someone entering the chat and doing this. And his name is Chet Hanks. I know you're right. Mm. I know you're right, but I don't want you to be right. I know. I'm just preparing you. you see? I know. And on one level, I appreciate it. But on the other hand, I would like ignorant bliss. <laughs> I would like not to know about that. Mm-hmm. Well, while we wait for me to die a slow, painful death of cringe, because again, this is mostly harmless. So I would like to say that again. Keep being cringe. Do your thing. I don't like it. 
I don't like it. And it's a free country and I'm allowed to do that. What else am I allowed to do? A show. There you go. And that's what we're here for. We have a guest to introduce. And luckily our guest is low-key on the hater train too, except I would say their hate is much more grounded in um, like facts and reason and like observably bad things versus a deep aversion to cringe. Um, after a short break, I'll be joined by the writer Patrick Marlborough, whose work has been published all across the World Wide Web, including on Slate.com, where they recently published an essay titled The Death of the Internet as a Haven for People with Autism. It's a really phenomenal essay that we'll be linking in the show notes. But if you haven't got a chance to read it yet, I will be chatting with Patrick in a bit about the kind of grief that comes alongside the slow death of platforms like Twitter and where the weirdos go once the Internet been sanded down into algorithm-sized feeds. And like the true weirdos, not the ones filming thirst traps in their living room. All of that after a short break. Hey y'all, hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening to ICYMI, then welcome. We're thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You are currently listening to our Wednesday episode. Our previous Saturday episode was about TikTok food influencer Keith Lee and his Atlanta food tour that uh, ended up turning the city upside down. You don't want to miss it. And we're back with Patrick Marlborough, a journalist, critic, and musician based in Fremantle, Western Australia. They've been published in Vice, Gawker, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and recently wrote an incredible essay for Slate titled The Death of the Internet as a Haven for People with Autism that I am so excited to discuss. Thank you for joining me, Patrick. Um, You're our very first guest from Down Under, so (laughs) this is exciting. (laughs) I'll do this once. Uh, G'day, and thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing that. I wasn't even going to (laughs) ask. I know how much you guys love it. (laughs) I know it should be offensive, you know, to the people of Australia and do stereotypes, but thank you so much for doing that. So as a first time (laughs) guest on the show, there's a question we ask everyone, which is what is your first internet memory? I think I actually uh, referenced this in 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 the essay. But it is a very vivid memory of us uh, sitting at a local cafe um, in my town, where I'm in now, actually, um, and Googling, like, pictures of my – well, not even Googling, like, pre-Google internet searching pictures of my favorite dinosaurs and uh, my favorite Pokemon <laughs> and just marveling that I could get the pictures up and then uh, printing them off. That's my, honestly, God, first memories of the internet, yeah. <laughs> I adore that. Also, just the analogness <laughs> of – both looking it up and then printing it out like the kids don't understand (laughs) and it was very like in a public place in this very like picturesque like nooky hippie cafe they had this little book corner with this old you know like a big desktop computer uh and you know i i had no idea how to use a computer my you know only child raised by kind of like older parents who like still to this day like don't know the difference between email and a text so i was just like what is this like wonder like i can put a, a picture of a velociraptor whenever i want this is going to change my life <laughs> 
So honestly, I could talk about Velociraptors for a while, but we're here today to talk (laughs) about your essay on the death of the internet as a haven for people with autism. And as I was reading your essay, I kind of got the sense that this has been an idea that had been long germinating. And I wanted to start off by asking, like, when did this idea first occur for you? What was kind of like the first note of the death knell, if you will? I mean, I think I honestly remember first pitching a version of this uh, pre-COVID. I want to say like 2018 almost. It wasn't even so much focusing on the autistic side at the time, but it, it was this like sense of... um communities disappearing and like specialist communities vanishing very quickly and the kind of internet that i kind of grew up with uh, you know in my early 20s and really my teens slipping through my fingers and like i think for me it was uh being unable to find new things in an easy way if that makes sense like i'm the kind of person that is excited to find new books and new music and be recommended it by other people who are just as obsessive and just as passionate about it. And like those voices, like slowly disappearing from the places where I'd always kind of organically been able to find them. I just remembered this like kind of, for want of a better way of putting it, like silence, which has only grown and grown and grown and grown. And I think like, you'd understand this, like, uh, you know, working in, in the media, you're kind of on the front lines of digital content death. <laughs> you know, the heat death of content and like you see the corporate decisions of it and you see the kind of artistic decisions and ramifications of it firsthand. And I just think like that has just been like compacting and compacting and compacting. I think the last year for me, you know, I I don't like saying his name, but like Musk and stuff like really accelerated that feeling. Mm -hmm. And definitely understand what you mean. It's kind of interesting that you mention not being able to find anything new because I feel like as the internet has gotten consolidated into these kind of algorithmicized feeds, the idea is that it's constantly servicing new things for you that are tailored to you, but there's so much less joy in it than before. It's not exploratory anymore and you feel uh, almost like cornered. I I think when I originally first like pitched this ages ago, my angle was autistic thinking doesn't fit inside an algorithm well. Uh, and, and I think my initial angle was actually like was writing as someone who's been a freelancer since I was 15 years old. As you had to write to SEO and like write to more SEO and content friendly stuff, which has never been my thing, but the industries kind of demanded it. I was like, where does that leave me, the guy that you hired to be the freak? It spread into every facet of our life online and I, I think offline as well. That smoothing down of everything. Mm. Something I found interesting in your essay is the way you noted that for basically as long as you've been on the internet, the people you found community with were kind of discussing the end of the internet. Um, You wrote, but where in the past this kind of talk occurred at the intersection of nostalgia and paranoia and now lands somewhere between prescience and grief. So... What's different now that the kind of talk you're referencing no longer feels like apocryphal, but almost Cassandra-like? I mean, I think it's the very literal death of websites that that we're seeing. And it's from vulture capitalists, like this rapacious brand of like, hey, no offense, American capitalism is destroying like <laughs> a global community. You know, it's uh, devouring these things now at a really rapid rate and things have fallen like dominoes. Like, I mean, you just have to look at the sale of Bandcamp 
Bandcamp is like one of the last good websites. It's like Wikipedia and Bandcamp. And uh, when they got sold to Epic last year, you could feel the beginning of the end. Like if you've seen this play out before, you're like, well, I know what's going to happen. And what, 10 months later, that exact thing happened. And I think that's why that kind of um, that fatalism that's settling in that I'm talking about, like it's just, it's very literal. These places are just disappearing. And there's not much in the way of competition that doesn't immediately get snapped up and gutted. I wish I had a solution to offer for it. Oh, same. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of pinpoint social media as the advent of things shifting. You wrote, things began to shift, if imperceptibly at first, with the advent of social media and the steady corralling and corporatization of that otherness, weirdness, fun, and joy. Could you kind of articulate what you think the internet was shifting away from and what you think it was shifting towards? I'd say it kind of went from a, like walking into a basement bar that was full of like eccentrics and drunks and maybe like the bar in Cheers essentially. And it's like a bunch Mm -hmm. of characters and maybe you're going to have a bit of a wild time. You're going to meet some freaks, but you maybe you're going to learn something. It kind of went from that kind of community atmosphere to what to me feels like a 1920s like medicine show, like Carnival Barker kind of kind of vibe to it, where there's this um, vaudeville element where we all start out as peanut throwing punters, and I think very slowly we've all become the vaudevillians ourselves. Like we're all tap dancing on these stages, and that in itself is very atomizing and like very exhausting. And I think that more like low key, anonymous, casual vibe that used to be there just it can't exist when the platforms are turning us as people into just data and selling points and things to throw inaccurate algorithmically generated and in twitter's case absolutely insane advertisements at i think once that shift happened you know i think that early time on facebook for me anyway when i was 20 ish and say you know you're in bands or whatever and it was addicting because you were being seen your art was being shared widely for the first time i think i talk in the piece like I'm from the most isolated city on earth. So to have your art, whatever that is, suddenly seen by anybody on the other side of the world is is an addicting feeling. And then, of course, as we know, like the way and shitification, uh, as uh, Corey Doctor brilliantly called it, works is that they slowly turn that spigot off until payola. And once that whole element comes into it, all that community side of things, I think, just dissipates very, very quickly. There's something almost paradoxical that I've been kind of thinking about, which is the kind of promise of the internet is just like these infinite possibilities. And it's what we see in it, but it's also what these kind of vulture capitalists see in it. But like infinite growth (laughs) for them is so much different than what any average consumer of the internet wants. Right. I I think about this all the time. And, you know, I'm, God, maybe I'm too stupid to understand it, but I'm just like, what is their end game in this? Because the the immediate result of making every product, every website, everything they buy um, unusable, which is what they do, be it a news website like what they did to the AV Club or what they're going to do to Bandcamp or like Amazon or something, anything like that, when they make everything unusable and untenable, um, what do they get out of it in the end? Because for what I see, they they lose money on that. I, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I don't get how it works. <laughs> uh, Me know, neither. It's just like you're in this world of like Simpsons monorail salesman, and 
we've all been sold these flaming monorails again and again and again, and we're all riding it and we know it's going to crash. It happens over and over and over. If you're a normal person, if you're anybody but these very strange billionaires, mm-hmm. uh, it's like you can't pass what's happening. It just it doesn't make any sense. You know that first wave of the internet, which I was too young to really experience, the, that the pureness of that original feeling. I think I came in when the wave was cresting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I talk about that a bit in the article. You've got those old heads who talk to you like that, like mountain wizards who have like, I've, <laughs> I've spoken to the face of God kind of vibe to them. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, yeah, it wasn't like that when I came in, but is that how I sound to some like Gen Z mm-hmm. TikTok kid? I don't know, probably. Yeah. So, kind of speaking of strange billionaires, I wanted to talk about your experience <laughs> on the site, formerly known as Twitter, because it seems to really kind of be the cornerstone of your essay. Yeah, well, the original draft was almost, uh, I'd say, 90% Twitter-focused. Uh, to, it became a very different article. It just was me essentially venting about Musk. And, you know, Twitter is uh, the bait of my life in a lot of ways. You've wasted and destroyed my brain on there. Uh, and many, many hours, but also uh, was an amazing place. And again, I came to Twitter quite late. 2016 was pretty late in the game. Um, but it was an amazing place to like... Uh, build community and make friends and and learn and find things which again was always what's exciting about the internet for me uh was being cottoned on to new movies new you know new art new politics anything and now of course it's this kind of uh not to be crass but it's like this sinister bukkake party of like nazis and like family court dads <laughs> kind of vibe to it mm-hmm. you know uh <laughs> Where, where you're not sure why you're sitting in the room still with these like Lynchian nightmare characters, but uh, sadly, it's still kind of the best at what it does on the internet, even while it's becoming absolutely terrible at doing that. It's just that all of its competitors are also there, so much worse. Uh, it's just Twitter now just has this element of um, aura of uh, sinister <laughs> vibes in every corner of it. Um, Again, it's it's peculiar as an Australian because uh, your internet is even more... The internet's quite parochial, despite, I think, how we think of it. And I think, like, the algorithms have made it more so. So I think as Musk has taken over, I've really felt my Twitter and my online world um, really shrink, where I used to be talking to friends in all countries all the time. And now I really feel like, no, I've got my little Australian corner, and that's it now. Mm, That's such a good point about how the kind of online possibilities have been getting constrained. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but first we need to take a short break. And we're back with Patrick Marlborough. You wrote in your essay that the site now known as X was always the one with the most visible and visibly autistic community and the one that ran on the most visible autistic logic. And I wanted to ask how you would kind of define autistic logic. For me, it's a certain balance of obsessiveness and benevolent cluelessness. Uh, is how I would describe it. <laughs> You're kind of drunk and mastering your way through life a little bit. I think like the best of Twitter, you know, it would promote the person who had their hyper-focused special interest and the person that would go on the info dump tangent or the person that's, you know, 
so kind of like that kind of semi-bewildered state of mind that autism has you in in a very complicated world can kind of give you a zen-like outlook, I think, from an outsider's perspective, uh, or make you very funny, which worked very well on Twitter. And I think it just was the best platform for a kind of thinking that either goes right in and on long tangents or is like popping off like little fireworks. It was the friendliest towards it. I think a lot of that also was the calm you could find as an autistic person in the noise of Twitter. It's very easy to disappear amongst it, even when you're being seen, if that makes sense. I think something like Facebook obviously is a bit more personal and a lot of other social medias, your presence can feel a lot less transient, where I think is on old Twitter, your ideas could come and disappear a lot easier, which I think helps somebody whose ideas are maybe not, yeah, I don't like using the word, but like, you know, not normal. In terms of finding that community there, I think it was the first place I saw like kind of vocal autistic identifying, like diagnosed autistics, like vocally talking about it. So I was diagnosed quite young and then diagnosed again as an adult. And until recently, there's still a lot of stigma and shame, but even just a certain like apologetic style of talking about it, what would get me is like, you know, translating yourself for neurotypical people. And I feel like Twitter was the first place I saw autistics not doing that while being aware of their autisticness because of course you see autistics not doing that Mm, which makes me want to ask a bit about tiktok where the hashtag autism has over 30 billion views um the hashtag autism awareness has over 6 billion views the hashtag autism of tiktok has over 3 billion views and you wrote in your essay what spectrum light oddness persists is part runoff, part fluke, part carnival barker. Mm. The most vocal autistic voice is operating somewhere between vaudevillian and huckster, thriving in that great medicine show that is the front-facing camera video circuit. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense from this that you don't exactly like the kind of autism content that proliferates on TikTok. Uh, no, and I mean, like, to a degree, I don't like my own there is a <laughs> there is a there is a wariness i have and talking about being a hawkster like i'm very much of on the soul goodman spectrum myself and i'm aware of that but in the personal essay boom of the 2010s for someone like me living in perth um who i you know i was like i'm a, I'm a good writer but i didn't have the degree and the connections I just needed my toe in the door and that got me in. There was a lot of encouragement to write about mental illness or and disability, which I made a name for myself doing if while trying to do it a bit differently. But I did became very aware of the, like, the exploitative element of it. And then it became really a cottage industry. And now it's a uh, booming industry. It's people's brand. And I, I'm always terrified of these days of having to make that my brand. Uh, this is a thing I write about and perform about a lot. whereas I. So with my fiction or my comedy, I try to write things that would make a non-autistic person feel autistic. Like I want people to leave my shows or whatever being like, wow, that's the most autistic thing I've ever seen. Or I understand autism now while I never said the word once and I never explicitly talked about it. Like that's my dream. Um, I try to do that. It's a bit harder to do in nonfiction essays where you got to approach it head on. But what I see now, uh, say with like TikTok, but really Twitter, anyway, Instagram, it's like neurodivergence is marketing. And like, we're all very aware of it, like the Instagram <laughs> infographication of disability, trauma, whatever, anything that can be turned into an identity can be turned into a brand. Uh, and I think for autistic people, there has to be a certain wariness of that. I think there should be community and pride in community. But I honestly do think people are losing 
themselves in what becomes a, a marketing pitch for algorithms, which at the end of the day are for profit companies where we're the marks at the end of the day. And when I see TikTok, I think why it disturbs me the most is like the people doing it are, are very young. And having been on the receiving end of this and having the rug pulled at me, at me before by private media companies, like I won't name their names about like divulging too much of this stuff about yourself or in some people's case, like diagnosing yourselves, like that is a common phenomenon or just like turning it into a selling point. I think it's something dispiriting about that. You know, it's like that if you have the thing that provides you an otherness, that's what they want from you. That's what they market you on. I, I'm speaking from firsthand experience of like publishers, anybody, they're like, hey, he's our autistic guy, like wheel him out kind of thing. I'm like, wow, well, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great point. Um, so I read the comments on your piece, which I'm sure you never do because you're smart. And there's something that a few commenters noted, which is that while Twitter is dead, there are still some websites with the kind of interlinked idiosyncratic vibe that Twitter used to have sites like Reddit and Tumblr. And I wanted to get your take on those sites as kind of replacements for the vibe you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I actually did read some of the comments and I did see those ones. And I, I don't necessarily um, disagree with them in terms of what they're saying, that there are other sites that I could be using as an example, like Dis Discord, I think is a, is a good example. And I actually did have like a kind of a lengthy paragraph discussing that at the end of the day, you know, we should put a disclaimer at the top of all articles of like this writer has been limited to a word count, <laughs> unfortunately, because it, it's, I mean, I, you know, even when I put, put it up, I was like, God, that's just like, I can take this from 10 different angles and have 10,000 more words in every direction, but there's only so much you can do at the end of the day. Those websites all have the exact same seed of failure in them. It is capitalism. And you can see it on Tumblr, it's been going on for, for a while. But when the content is, at the end of the day, dictated by a company and a market, uh, the exact same collapse is going to happen. Like Twitter is unique in that the man that bought it is just maybe the most unlikable man on the planet. So... Like, you've got a very unique situation there. The other ones are going to get bought and gutted or already have by more faceless, weird vulture capitalists. But Musk, you know, has got a, a million personality disorders uh, and is just the least charismatic human being you could probably think of, um, which makes it more extreme. But I think those other places, that, that seed of failure is there. These platforms, the collapse cycle, like our economy, is built into the system. And it's not for our benefit. I would have loved to have gone into all of it <laughs> individually in the piece. But like I said, you just, you can't really. But those people also, like, they aren't wrong. Like, there are still autistic spaces. There's obviously, the internet's is full of autistics. It's going to be, they're going to be there until they turn the lights off. But I think the nature of those spaces and the underlying intent of them has fundamentally changed in a way we're never going to get back. That open source community forum style, even like quasi-independent internet is just, that's just gone. So my last question is kind of a long one, but a year or so ago, I did an interview with a digital scholar named Meredith D. Clark. And she mentioned this concept of digital hush harbors, which 
references spaces where enslaved Black Americans would gather to practice religious traditions that were outlawed. And she spoke about how Black people recreated those spaces online in the comment sections of blogs, which weren't necessarily met as places to convene, but became them out of necessity. It was, it was very much, it was, it was very much a, if you know, you know, kind of space. And I was reminded of this while I was reading your piece, specifically near the end of your essay, where you write, what is the value of the internet when all the fringe dwellers have been pushed off of it? And I kind of wanted to turn that question back around and ask, do you really think it's possible for fringe dwellers to be fully pushed off the internet? Or do you think they'll just end up in these spaces that weren't necessarily built for them, but end up becoming for them? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> um, I can already see it happening in my own life uh, and my with my own like autistic buddies and stuff like that people in those kind of circles are already the last two or three years kind of existing in these uh in between spaces like i feel like we're, we're just we're retreating uh down the alleys and like between the cracks kind of kind of kind of feeling to it um i think i think what's what's missed say amongst like the autistic community at least with the people that i talk to um is that sense of belonging in the larger space which we don't always necessarily get in our lives off, off offline lives autistic communities for the most part when they're together <laughs> uh is largely online i feel like it's a you're a very atomized group of people by nature so I feel like that loss is a big part of that feeling of uh, that that grief I'm talking about. But those little nooks and crannies, like yeah, that always going to be there, are already there. Like I feel like in the last few years, it, it's been a big retreat to group chats, obviously, and like quasi forum spaces. But you're still like using these platforms, but maybe just not in the way that the people that run them are, are intending them, intending for you to use them. You know, like for a long time, Twitter for me you know the news always drags you back onto twitter unfortunately but it was just like a group chat dm app where i was with these people because the site itself became just a, a, an unpleasant place to uh, to use i think that will always happen but i think that's there's still something sad about that because those spaces you know they're predicated on uh, a lack of welcome uh in in a larger space and i i think what's unique in this instance is that lack of welcome is not so much from the community it's in the systems you now like it's in it's 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 part of the function of the thing which i think it's difficult to wrap your head around there's no way to communicate with that frustration it's like being frustrated with gravity because just at the end of the day there's not much you can do about it i don't know i i wish i had a better answer to that question but i i think i think you're right in terms of those spaces it's definitely going to exist. They're going to exist and it will function like that. No, I completely get what you mean. And importantly, I think as kind of beautiful as a concept, Hush Harbors are, there's inherently a grief of, in them. They exist because of exclusion. They exist because of enslavement. They exist because of like shadow slavery. So I, I understand yeah. what you mean, where it's like these spaces don't exist because of some 
you know, beautiful, altruistic, like, desire to be in these nooks and crannies. Yes, it's not like a secret tea party that you're having for fun. Exactly. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. right. You know, it's like, oh, let's do, do something nice over this little cute area. It's not, yeah, uh, that element to it. I think what gets me at the end of the day about all this stuff, um, if I'm looking at it, like I said earlier, as a corporate person, is the fundamental unusability of these spaces now. Um, they don't work for the things that they they were built for and that what attracted people to them. If they're not working for anybody, what's the point of them and what happens next? All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. It's the best way to never miss an episode. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMindersCorePod, and you can always drop us a note at ICYMindsLate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Rachel Hampton, and me, Candace Lim. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or not.